lines 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. So this is the fourth week in the season of Epiphany, which follows Advent, which is a season to reflect on who this Jesus is, who's coming, we had celebrated in the previous season. And so we've been marking this time in the church year together by looking at some of the great passages in the New Testament that lay before us the person of Jesus Christ and everything he is and has done for us in grand, startling fashion so that we can have our, our hearts captivated, our imaginations captured in a fresh way by Jesus Christ. And so we turn again to another passage where this happens for us from the book of Hebrews. Let's pray and ask God to bless our consideration of these things. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you have, as this text tells us, spoken to us. You have not left us in darkness without knowledge of who you are as our creator and our redeemer. Give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ together as we look at this text, and we pray in his name. Amen. So when I was in the car this week, I caught just like the first five minutes of This American Life on the radio. I don't know how many of you know that show, but it's, a, it's an NPR true life storytelling show where every week they have a different theme, and then they tell three real life stories based on that theme. And they can vary from the lives of sailors on an aircraft carrier to immigrants at the Mexican border. It can be anything. And Ira Glass, the host, began this week's episode by saying something like, in his kind of very matter-of-fact way, in the past month, we've witnessed the impeachment of an American president. We almost went to war with Iran. And there's a new killer virus making its way around the world. In these dark, combative times, We've attempted the most radical counter-programming we could think of. And so today our theme is delight. And so they told three stories, I didn't get to hear them all yet, about the pursuit of delight. And the first clip that came up was a five-year-old on her first day of kindergarten watching the bus pull up with extraordinary anticipation and excitement about getting on the bus. And she was, she was just crying out, that's my bus! That's my bus! That's my bus! And it was really refreshing because typically when I turn on NPR or any other news source in recent months and years, it is incredibly discouraging for all the reasons and many others that Ira Glass delineated. And so they, at This American Life, decided that in the midst of all of this cultural darkness, we want to focus on the experience of delight. And that is 
pretty much exactly what the author of the letter to the Hebrews wants to help us to experience as well. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, who were experiencing a great deal of darkness. They experienced opposition and persecution, and so they were facing threats to at least their property and potentially to their very lives. And they were experiencing temptation of all sorts. You can tell this by reading the sorts of exhortations and counsel the author gives to them throughout the book. And so the author to the Hebrews wants to help this group of Christians to persevere in their faith amidst all manner of opposition and temptation. And so he gives them all sorts of exhortations to do so. But the way he gives them the strength, the power, the motivation, the inspiration to persevere is by setting before them the majestic beauty and glory of Jesus Christ in every way he can so that they will delight in him, so that they will be captivated by him and be able to persevere. The theme of the book of Hebrews has been summarized by many people to simply be Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything or anyone or any system. Better than any religion, better than any prophet, better than any angel, better than anyone. And so the entire book of Hebrews, and this is sort of the prologue of it, is about the supremacy of Jesus, that he is supreme overall. So I want to consider with you together two aspects from this passage of the supremacy of Jesus. What makes him vastly superior to all else? And the first of those aspects of the supremacy of Jesus is that he is the supreme revelation of God. Verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom we know to be Jesus. Long ago, God spoke in all sorts of ways to the fathers by the prophets. The word translated in many ways can be it's something like in pieces or in parts. The story of Scripture from start to finish is the story of a God who speaks. It starts with him speaking the cosmos into existence. And then it continues with him speaking to his people. He speaks to Adam. He speaks to Noah. He speaks to Abraham and Hagar. He speaks to Moses. And he, he speaks to the prophets. And he does so so that he can reveal himself to his people. He has spoken over and over and over again. But there's this big change that has taken place. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the past, he spoke by the prophets in many ways, but now he has spoken by his son. The sense that emerges is the sense of a completeness, of a finality, of a superiority of this new speaking to us, this new act of speaking to us by his son. He has spoken in pillars of clouds and fire and whirlwinds through still small voices and the voices of the prophets. But now, 
he has spoken to us by his son. And there is nothing left for him to say in this age than what he has given us in speaking to us by his son. And the entire rest of the letter delineates why this revelation of himself through the Son is so supreme and so marvelous. But we get a starting glimpse of it even in this passage. We get a picture of the power of the Son. We're told that it was through him that God created all things, through whom he created the universe, the cosmos. And we're told that not only did God create everything through him, but that he upholds, that the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. The entire universe, every little quirk inside the atoms on your fingernails, that every distant quasar billions of galaxies away is held together by the word of his power. And the writer of the Hebrews, right out, out of the gate, he's trying to give us not just a sense of the power and the immensity of Jesus, but the beauty of his power. We see that in the language of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. I don't know what more lofty language a person could grab onto to try to help us to understand it. We are not just looking at power, but at beauty when we are looking at Jesus. And the reason is that he is, in fact, the revelation of God. He is, we're told in verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature. The word imprint is interesting. In Greek, it literally is the word character. And character can mean a moral character. It can also mean like a character that you write, like the letter A is a character. But... The point is that when you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. He is the exact imprint of his nature, the exact character of his nature, the exact moral shape of God and the power of God and the glory of God and the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the majesty of God. If you want to know these things, gaze at Jesus and you will see them. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us. Because he is God himself. Now it's worth asking, because we've been saying throughout this entire series from various passages that Jesus Christ is God himself. Who took on flesh and came and became God with us. If that is so, why is there language in this passage that speaks of Jesus sort of advancing to this state of supremacy and becoming something? So, for example, if you look at verse 2, we're told that the Father appointed the Son as the heir of all things. Which seems to make the Father seem a bit superior. Or if you look down again at uh, verse 4, we're told that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So if the angels used to be superior to Jesus and Jesus has become superior to them, then maybe some of our Jehovah's Witnesses friends or, or Mormon friends are correct that Jesus 
is a creature that God has simply put into a supreme place in the creation. What is this language talking about? The reason the New Testament speaks this way of Jesus is because it speaks of him in his incarnation. God coming in Christ and taking humanity to himself. So that the man, Jesus Christ, has been appointed the heir of all things as the new Adam because God has joined himself to humanity in the person of Jesus. And the reason he is spoken of as having become superior to the angels is because he was born in a manger or laid in a manger after he was born. He was born in humble circumstances and humbled himself as we looked at the other week to the point of death, even death on a cross. But has now been raised from the dead, conquering death and exalted to the right hand of God. And so Christ, as God and man, in one person, has been appointed by the Father to be heir of all things and has become superior to the angels. So we see the supreme revelation of God. That's the first thing. The second aspect of Christ's supremacy that is on display for us in this passage is that he is the supreme priest and sacrifice. The supreme priest and sacrifice, which is expounded in great detail throughout the book of Hebrews. But if you look again at the second half of verse 3, we're told, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, some of you have heard this before, but it is of crucial significance that we're told Jesus made purification for sins and sat down. You have to remember that Jesus came into the world after a long history of God with his people. The story of the Bible is that God created humankind to walk in communion with him and to steward creation on his behalf. That in sin we turned away from God's rule and wanted to rule ourselves and we broke our fellowship with him. But he made a promise to a man named Abraham that through Abraham and his descendants he would bless all the nations of the earth so that they could live under the smile of God instead of under the curse of sin. And the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, were given this system of sacrifices and purity, not because the sacrifice of an animal has any actual power to take away sin, but as a sort of object lesson to teach God's people that in order to dwell in communion with the holy God, something about you has to be dealt with. Your shame, your impurity, your sin has to be removed from you so that the gloriously, morally pure and radiantly beautiful God can wrap his arms around you. You have to be made pure and holy. And so there was this system of priests and sacrifices, but the priests had to sacrifice over and over and over again to keep the object lesson going because the blood of bulls and goats can't actually take sins away. And so if you were to go further into the book of Hebrews, you'd get to chapter 10, and you'd come across these words in verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that is, just set apart for God. The writer of the Hebrews is saying the Old Testament priests had to keep standing because they had to keep sacrificing because those sacrifices were really just a picture of the true sacrifice which was to come. But after Jesus offered up as the priest himself as the supreme sacrifice, he sat down because it was done. Mic drop. It's over. Everything required to remove your sin and shame is done. When you are in Christ by faith, it's over. There's no more sacrifice to be made. There's no self-flagellation or self-hatred or self-loathing you have to add. No wallowing in your failures or imperfections. None of it is needed. And your life of obedience and holiness is now one of gratitude, walking in grace. Not one of seeking to atone for yourself because the atonement is done. He is the supreme priest in the supreme sacrifice. So that is the supremacy of Christ that is laid before us. He is the supreme revelation of God and the supreme, supreme priest and sacrifice. So now I want to talk briefly just about what this really means for us practically. What are some implications for us? And there are two of them. I mean, there are many more. But there are two to consider this morning. And the first is that Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. If he is the supreme revelation of God, and there is no one else before or after who gives a fuller or truer or better revelation of who God is, and if he is the supreme priest and sacrifice, the only one who can reconcile us to God, then he is absolutely necessary. He is necessary for us. It is necessary that we cast ourselves on his mercy. And he is necessary for every single other person in the world, in every nation. Which, as you know, feels and sounds to so many around us, and sometimes to us ourselves, so narrow in a pluralistic world. But we actually tend to be rather narrow when it comes to matters of life and death. If you have chest pains, and you go to the doctor, and, and he or she examines you and says, you have some pretty clogged arteries. This is what needs to happen. We need to operate on you. We need to medicate you. And you need to change your lifestyle. You don't say, quit being so narrow. I think there's another way I can live and be just fine. No, you, you actually believe that this doctor's narrow prescriptions to save your life are exactly what you need. And this is the only way, actually, receiving what God says about himself the only way to actually have a relationship with him. Every single one of us has a heart that aches to know and be known by other people and ultimately 
by the one who made us. And you can't have, and I have to credit Tim Keller, pastor in New York, with articulating it in this particular way, but you cannot have any personal relationship with anybody if you don't receive their own self-disclosure. Right? So, like, if you get married to somebody, or if you have a roommate, or if you have a friend, what you come to realize is that there are certain things about this person which are not going to change. And if you're going to have a relationship with them, you have to adapt yourself to the reality of that person. You can't know a God who you want to form into your image. You have to receive his self-disclosure. This actually should make sense to us in a counterintuitive way, even more in our particular cultural moment where there's so much emphasis on every person's individual freedom to define himself or herself and to declare to the world who we are and to demand that the world accept it, why would God have less privileges of self-disclosure than we would? That just doesn't make any sense. And what happens if we have a God to whom we say, we will fashion you in our image, and decide which parts of your revelation we like and which parts we don't like, we end up with, this is again, this is Keller's illustration, it's have to give credit, with a Stepford God. Have you seen the Stepford Wives, the movie, either the old one or the new one? It's, it's a story about uh, a couple who moves to a really wealthy, idyllic place in Connecticut, and it seems first like it's perfect, and like all the marriages are perfectly harmonious, but it gets really bizarre because it's not just that the marriages are harmonious, it's that the wives are completely subservient to their husbands. Anything the husband wants, the moment he wants it, the way he wants it, in every aspect of marital life together, with a completely unflinching smile, the wife provides. And the reason it turns out is because a microchip has been placed in each of the women to turn them into robots. And so now they will do, they will take the sh whatever shape the husbands want, but there's no more relationship. You can't actually have a relationship with a robot. Sorry, Siri, or Google Assistant. And so Jesus is necessary. The second implication for us is that Jesus calls us to persevere and to help one another persevere. If you were to take, you know, 45 minutes or whatever and read through the book of Hebrews even quickly, you will see that the theme of persevering in faith to the end and helping one another to persevere in the faith to the end is struck over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews. A very famous passage in chapter 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. And so what that means for you, Redemption Church, today and always and in this next season, and as I said last week, as you gather for community groups, as you gather for prayer at the Matson's home next week, as you think through church life and next steps, one crucial purpose to keep before you 
is to help one another persevere in faith to the end. When you come to church on Sunday morning, one of the reasons you're coming is to help me finish well in Christ. And so that you can be helped by me and by everyone else in the room to finish well in Christ. This is actually your job description as a Christian. Look around the room. Like Actually, look around the room. Your job is to help these people continue on the path of eternal life. So we've, this is just kind of the ground we've covered from these opening verses of the book of Hebrews. We've said that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God, the supreme priest and sacrifice, and therefore he is absolutely necessary. And we have to persevere in him and help one another persevere in him. So that is the call of this text. As, uh, as you all know, I'm sure, uh, last week Kobe Bryant, the great basketball player, died. And I was watching one of the tributes to him. He died along with his daughter and I think it was nine other people, seven other people, in a helicopter crash. Uh, one of the tributes to him was Jimmy Kimmel, the late night guy, who is in Los Angeles, so he's a Lakers fan and had had Kobe Bryant on his show number of times, knew him personally at least to some extent. And so on Jimmy Kimmel's first show after his death, after Kobe's death, he devoted the show to talking about Kobe Bryant and showing reruns of times he had been a guest on the show. And in his opening monologue, he was close to tears, and he did a really good job of trying to acknowledge that Kobe Bryant was in some ways a controversial figure. He had a very serious criminal allegation made against him once, which was eventually dropped. But he said Kobe was a hero. And again, he wanted to be careful. He didn't want the Twitterazzi to come after him. He said, I'm not saying he's a hero like a firefighter or a police officer or a teacher or those people who actually save lives. But he was a hero, this is a paraphrase, like the kind that captures our imagination. Like he even had a costume and did things that seemed to be superhuman. And what I was struck by in Jimmy Kimmel's tribute is the longing we have for a hero who both is morally perfect and is somebody who actually saves lives and who actually dazzles us with his achievements. And we have that person in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So continue in him and help one another to continue in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the beauty, the radiance, the power, the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us not to turn to the right or to the left in the path of discipleship, but to continue to follow him. Help us to take every anxiety and every temptation and hold it up to the light of the beauty of Christ so that their power is loosed from us. We ask it in Jesus Christ's name.